Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to introduce Dr. Jill Cattell from California in the United States. Thank you for joining me, Jill. You're welcome. My pleasure. Could you tell us who you are and what you do? So I have a general internal medicine practice in California. We're in North San Diego County in the city of Poway. And I am a solo practitioner with a private practice. Um, I'm board certified in internal medicine and practicing now for about 20 years this year. And with a focus on integrative holistic medicine. Um, in 2007, I joined what is now the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine and became a diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. So in my practice, I really take a whole-person approach to treatment. So tell us, when did you first hear about LDN? So I first heard about low-dose naltrexone in summer of 2008, and I had a patient who was 77 years old at the time, and she had come in, and her daughter had had an excellent response using LDN for rheumatoid arthritis. And so my patient was interested in taking it to see if it would help with her immune system and help to treat her asthma and allergies, which she was having a lot of trouble with and having to take several medications regularly. So she brought me a lot of paperwork that, um, that she had printed out and I read through it all and mainly was looking to make sure it seemed like it was safe and wouldn't be harmful. And I felt it would be safe. So I agreed to write her the prescription. And she came back about six months later just for her regular checkup. And it turned out she was then off all her uh, asthma and allergy medications and she was feeling very well. And... Um, looked great, and actually she has been taking it since then and is still doing quite well. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing story. It is. Did you then start prescribing it for all your patients? No, I really didn't think about it uh, very much past that. Uh, the reading that I had done when she'd come in was mainly regarding using it for multiple sclerosis. Um, so it wasn't until about... 2011, I had an interesting case uh, where a young man came to me, and he had 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 an episode of double vision and had seen a neurologist and had a very abnormal MRI of the brain with several lesions, and he was diagnosed with a demyelinating disease and uh, was told he had a very high risk of uh, developing full-blown MS. And so the neurologist offered him the standard conventional treatments for MS, and the patient did his own research, and in thinking about the potential side effects, he decided not to pursue that at that time. So he came to me and was asking about any possibilities for a holistic or alternative treatment approach. And I remembered the reading that I had done from 2008. And so 
I started him on LDN and followed him very closely. And each time I saw him, he was improving. And we had interval MRIs that were slightly improved each time. And then his MRI of his brain that he had at two years um, was read as normal. And I thought, well, surely there's something. Mm -hmm. So I called over to the radiology department and spoke with a, uh, a different radiologist. And he looked at the films and he said, everything's normal. And I said, okay, well, let's make sure that's the right person. Pull up the films from two years ago. And he pulled them up and said, yes, you know, I, I see the brain lesions. I'm looking at the current MRI. The current MRI is normal. Wow. And it was really, it was really remarkable. And just being able to see firsthand the kind of results that you can get using LDN. Um, but still, even at that point, I wasn't thinking about using it outside of MS. Well, then, so um, last year, as part of my board recertification process, I had to write up and submit a case report. And I chose this particular case because it was so interesting. And in the course of doing the case report, I did a literature review on uh, low-dose naltrexone. And there was so much information available about LDN, much more than I had remembered from the previous time. And the more I read, the more interested I became. And I read through uh, case reports, studies. I read through patient testimonials and learned the science behind it, you know, the basic biochemistry, the biology, and learning that there's so much that we do know now, which cells in the body it affects, which types of receptors, the cellular pathways, and understanding that treatment with LDN is really founded on basic science, clinical evidence, and really years of physician experience working with patients with LDN. So after that time, I decided... I was going to start considering it as a treatment option for patients who had um, problems that were other than MS when it was clinically appropriate and there seemed like there could be a potential for benefit. And since I have a general internal medicine practice, I see a wide range of different types of problems. And so over the past year and into this year, I prescribed it for many different conditions. And the results have been overwhelmingly positive. You said to me that you had done a survey. Have you got the uh, results of that survey? Yes. So since I knew that we'd be talking, I uh, have a, been keeping a uh, record of all my patients that I've prescribed it for. And right now I have somewhere over 50 patients taking it for a variety of different problems and uh, different categories that are related in terms of having some sort of uh, immune system dysfunction or inflammatory components, um, really a wide range of diagnoses. I have some uh, who are taking it for autoimmune joint problems, such as rheumatoid, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, mixed connective tissue disorder, Sjogren's. Some taking it for autoimmune gastrointestinal problems like uh, celiac disease, ulcerative colitis, collagenous colitis. I have a few patients for asthma and allergies, um, some patients with uh, different types of nerve disorders, and, uh, of course, patients with uh, fibromyalgia or chronic pain. And so I, I contacted about three-quarters of my patients who are taking it right now, and I had them rate 
their response to the LDN. And I gave them a scale, and at one through five, with a two being no change, three being a slight improvement, four being some improvement, and five being much improved. And it was very, um, it was very interesting because I knew that people were responding well and doing well. But I, when I took the actual numbers, the numbers turned out that 89% of patients were reporting at least some improvement, which is a very high number. Mm-hmm. And of those patients, the, the number of patients that actually gave me a five, so they were much improved, came out to almost a third of these patients. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. So it's very exciting. Yes, very. So that's been, been fun. So what would you say to other doctors who are thinking of prescribing LDN to their patients? I would say that depending on the type of problem that the patient has and knowing the patient, that low-dose naltrexone should be considered uh, when there is a possibility that might benefit, especially for autoimmune-type problems or inflammatory-type problems where it seems like there might be benefit because it's really so low risk in terms of side effects. And there has been many years of experience with other doctors using this medication. Oh, really quite something. Amazing results that you've had there. It is. And in this country, it's FDA approved at the higher doses, 50 to 100 milligrams. And so we're using it off-label. So it's it's got all the safety data that we need to feel comfortable using it. So what's your plan now, Jill? I'm excited to go on with these patients and see how they do the longer that they take the medication. seems to be the patients who have more inflammation uh, respond most quickly. I've seen some patients within a month having benefit. Other patients who have more non-inflammatory type problems, whether it's nerve or non-inflammatory pain, taking a little bit longer, a few months, to really start to see the benefit. But as time goes on, they continue to show improvement. Um, some of my patients, even you know, five, six months out, uh, noticing quite a bit of benefit that they weren't noticing the first few months. So from your experience, um, dosing-wise, I'd like to discuss with you, do you suggest daytime dosing, nighttime dosing? How do you go around about dosing? That's a good question. I have typically been dosing it at bedtime, um, but in patients where I know they are already having some issues with sleep, I will actually prescribe it in the morning. And I haven't really seemed to notice a difference between the patients who are taking it bedtime and some in the morning. Now, some patients at bedtime are saying, well, it's the first time they've had pain-free sleep you know, in a long while. Mm-hmm. And others, it might be causing uh, a side effect where they get the vivid dreams. Hasn't been an issue for most patients, either that's passed, um, or if it hasn't, we moved it to morning, and then it wasn't an issue anymore. And you say about the, the vivid dreams, that brings me on to my next topic, of side effects. Have you noticed anything other than sleep disturbance or vivid dreams? Right. So, 
of the prescriptions I've written, which has been a little over 60 now, we've had about six patients stop. In two of them, it was because they'd been on long enough and hadn't noticed a change. Um, the other few, mainly for sleep issues, um, and I did have one patient who was perimenopausal who her, her period resumed, mm -hmm. which was not something she was happy about. <laughs> <laughs> so what about pain relief? That's always a question that people ask. You know, what can I take alongside of taking LDN? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, most typical pain medicines should be fine. Acetaminophen, anti-inflammatories. It's come up a question, uh, what about tramadol? Um, I think tramadol really should not be a problem um, as long as it's dosed enough apart from the LDN, I would say four hours at least. Uh, the short-acting tramadol, long-acting tramadol, I think is a different story and probably wouldn't use that with it. Mm -hmm. And that would go for other long-acting uh, pain medications would not be appropriate. Uh, but the short-acting pain medicine, uh, if you have a patient who has a flare and they really need something for pain, if it's far enough away from their dosing on the LDN, I don't think it should be an issue as long as it's short-acting. I did have one patient where she had a flare and she really had to take a pain pill. And she had been taking the LDN at nighttime, and this was during the day at some point. And she did take one of her pain pills, and it did give her some relief. And, and the interesting thing was she didn't get the drugged feeling um, that she would normally get with the pain pills, and that was a good thing for mm -hmm. her. Well, definitely. Have you noticed anything else, as in drug interactions, with any other medication? I have not. Well, that's good. I'm just trying to, to think of the other questions that people ask, um, talking about... Um, this lady who's started menstruating again, LDN does help with a lot of uh, women's problems. So that's something else that uh, I'm sure a lot of women would be interested in um, yeah. finding out more about. And we discussed last night about how LDN is also being used for um, psychologists are using it and psychiatrists. And you probably heard uh, Dr. Mark Shukman speaking at the conference in Las Vegas, um, how he uses LDN in his practice. And it's very interesting. It, it isn't just like you were saying, MS or even fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis. The list is um, quite considerably long now. I think there's 178 conditions that we know of that LDN can treat. Um, many have an autoimmune um, component there. Well, all of them probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, that was very interesting. And we've seen it, I've seen as a side effect for my patients uh, taking LDN, most of them feel better, which I think may be an effect of the increased endorphin levels. They just have an improved sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. And I have a few patients taking it for different types of mood disorders where the traditional medications really haven't been effective. And they found it quite beneficial. That's so it's amazing, isn't it? It, yeah. it is. It's, it's very interesting. And when you look at so many of the chronic illnesses that we treat on a daily basis, really at their heart have 
chronic inflammation and immune system dysfunction as the, as the basic problem. And so LDN gives us a tool to go after that and really treat the root cause of the problem instead of just treating the symptoms or the end diagnosis, if you will, which is exciting. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. And if you can halt it early on, like the, the case study that you were talking about, that um, the lesions had gone and the MS wasn't going to become full-blown, you managed right. to stop it. I mean, how amazing would it be if people on diagnosis started LDN immediately? Right, right. It's just, there's so little downside to starting it. And if more people knew about it, it could be started earlier on in the course of problems. I think people would, you know, if they respond, wonderful. It's great. It's very inexpensive, low risk of side effects, and uh, certainly save a lot of time and, you know, unwanted side effects with other treatments. Yes. Thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to welcome back today my guest, who's Dr. Jill Cattell, who's one of our medical advisors. Thank you for joining me, Jill. Thank you, Linda. It's good to be on here again. So could you tell us, what have you been doing since we last spoke? Well, we have a, a new program that we've developed uh, over the past year where we're now doing uh, telemedicine consultations. And uh, it's, been, it's been really fun, a whole new exciting avenue and um, got to meet a lot of people who uh, don't live in the area and uh, it's, it's been really exciting. Uh, mainly we've been seeing people in California and uh, it's exciting because we get patients who otherwise may not have had um, access to care as quickly as they wanted or for exactly the concerns they were looking for. It's, it's new. It's new mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. um, it's been around, been around for a while, um, you know, in other areas of medicine, but uh, we hadn't really um, embraced the technology until just recently. Well, I know from experience when you are really sick, traveling a long distance, especially if you've got, you know, an hour or two to travel and then you've got to sit around in the office and then drive back home. It's too much if you're not healthy enough to do it, don't you think? Yeah. Mm. Yes, I think so. And there's a lot of people who are in that situation. They're just, you know, not doing well or they've got chronic pain or, you know, some other sort of debilitating illness. And not even that, but we're here in Southern California and traffic is a nightmare. And so I've had patients who aren't actually that far away 
distance-wise, but time-wise. So I end up getting in the car and fighting traffic for an hour to get here. Uh, It's much easier for them to pull up on telemedicine. If all we're doing is chatting anyway, if it's a med check and we're just updating and mainly going to talk. So that's been helpful. Yes. And you can all, you're in California, as people probably realize. So you can do the telemed consultations in California and you're now licensed in Virginia as well. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So either state, and it just has to be, the patient has to be in the state borders at the time of the consultation. So just somewhere within the state physically located. Uh, and then after that, uh, their, um, their medication be, can be called in at the pharmacy of their choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Telephone consultations, telemed consultations outside of the U.S., how does that work? Well, right now we're still trying to uh, get an idea of that. It really depends on the country where the patient is located and what that country's particular rules and regulations are regarding uh, doctors who are not licensed in that country. There are some countries where as long as you're working under the authority of another doctor, that's acceptable. And so it depends on on patient situation. And then, of course, if the medication is prescription or if it's over the counter, that makes a difference, too, for the various countries. Mm -hmm. Now, excitingly imminently <laughs> the LDN app is going to be uh, tested um, in about 10 days time and we've altered it so that patients doctors and pharmacists can monitor their patients now I know this was going to be of particular interest to you because you have been um prescribing not just the low-dose naltrexone but the full-strength naltrexone for alcohol use disorder. Could you tell us how that is going to work and how the app comes into play? Yeah, so we're very, very excited about being able to use the app now. Um, And we do a lot of work with patients who are uh, seeking treatment for alcohol use disorders. And the telemedicine is nice because it's um, easy, it's private, it's discreet, and uh, patients who are in all areas of the state have access. Um, There are different um, ways that patients can keep track of their alcohol consumption and um, they can use an Excel file or a personal journal, but the difficulty is um, getting that information to me or to their provider. And now with the LDN app, there's uh, a way in there to actually be able to log um, the consumption of alcohol on a daily basis. And there's other places in the app to log other symptoms like sleep and pain and quality of life and things like that. And so for patients to be able to share that information um, with us so we can pick it up on our end, I think is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. And I have spoken to 
several people who have an alcohol problem and they find the ones that I've spoken to is that they are unhappy with themselves for doing it, for being addicted to um, alcohol and they are ashamed of people knowing. You know, they don't want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't want to even go to their doctors to say, I have a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. But in your experience using what's called the Sinclair method, how successful has that been for your patients? It's actually, it's been very successful. I would say if you look at what's reported um, with other clinicians using it uh, and in the literature, it's somewhere around um, 70% success rate or higher. And in our practice, we've seen about the same rate. I would say maybe three out of four patients are successful. And we can often tell in that initial consultation if they're more likely to respond. So if they're patients who've had a family history of uh, other family members with alcohol issues, if they have strong alcohol cravings, um, and interesting enough, if they're craving sugar. So those things tend to suggest they have an endorphin-mediated alcohol uh, drinking problem. Um, but those patients uh, tend to usually respond very well. The naltrexone at the full dose um, at the 50 milligrams and sometimes you have to go a little bit higher, but generally around those doses will actually block the uh, endorphin uh, pathway um, to where it's not that they won't feel relaxed and um, have the normal effect of alcohol, but it won't have this endorphin um, reinforcing effect so that over a period of time, um, they no longer have uh, any difficulty controlling their consumption. It doesn't. It's not something that is a problem in their life anymore. Because mm-hmm. for most, for the most part, it's not the alcohol that's a problem. It's the patient's response to the alcohol uh, and what happens with the wiring in their brains. And so that's what we're trying to trying to address. Mm-hmm. For those people that don't know what the Sinclair method is could you just explain you know because where normally if you have an alcohol problem you're told you're not to drink with this program you're still able to drink so could you explain the steps that you take and the patient takes when they first start with an altruism sure sure so this has actually been very well documented in the literature it's been studied It sounds unusual, but there's good literature and documentation for this, and I reviewed this uh, in the recorded talk we did for the last conference. But in the literature, it's called targeted dose naltrexone, and it's where patients are not abstinent um, at the time they begin therapy, which is um, in the past was not typically the case. Normally, patients were required to become abstinent before starting uh, any sort of program. In this program, it's not a requirement. Um, and patients are begun on the naltrexone uh, while they are consuming alcohol. And what we find is that if they're a patient for whom they, they're a responder, 
their consumption will just gradually drop with time, usually within the first month. Um, and so they end up detoxifying on their own. So they're not going to an expensive rehab program where they pay thousands and thousands of dollars and have this sudden withdrawal with all the symptoms that go along with it. It's very unpleasant. Um, this way, they're you know in the comfort of their own home, able to keep their own schedule, go to work, but gradually that consumption is coming down, and so they're not going to have the acute withdrawal that other patients are going to go through. Um, and the by having the naltrexone in the system when the patient consumes alcohol, it's blocking the reinforcement effects of the endorphins that are given off when they drink. And then over time, that pathway that is then built into the brain that is causing the patient to have problems controlling their consumption, that pathway is actually um, being extinguished. It's what it's called in the literature. And... Uh, um, if, if a patient has endorphin-mediated drinking, it's actually very effective. And then after a certain period of time, which is anywhere between three months and six months, um, the patients can go on from that point and be abstinent if they choose, or they can be a social drinker. We just recommend that they always take the naltrexone before drinking so they don't develop this um, sort of problem again. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly... Um, I think that there may be a role for low-dose naltrexone in maintaining these patients once they've gone through the first phase of treatment. And I say that because we've had a few patients who we actually had to transition to low-dose naltrexone um, down the road for other medical problems, and they actually were able to maintain the success that they'd had with um, with the program and I think there might be a role for it in helping with the endorphin levels. Well, it's interesting. So I'm finding, yeah, I'm finding that interesting. And because, you know, you go for three to six months um, on the standard dose naltrexone and you are suppressing the endorphins. And so we don't want that to be a long-term treatment where you're going to take one tablet of 50 milligrams naltrexone every day forevermore. Um, so, you know, if, if patients are drinking a couple times a week or here and there, it's probably not an issue. But in the in-between days, taking low-dose naltrexone to kind of help boost the endorphin levels seems like it would be a reasonable thing to do. And there's no literature for this yet, um, but from the patients in the very early responses we're seeing it looks promising Mm. and for any of the patients that you have treated have they relapsed or have they all followed the program so we've had some patients where they have decided they're completely better and don't need to worry about it anymore and stop taking the naltrexone altogether too soon so some patients you know, we had someone at a month who just felt like they were cured and went off the program, and it was too soon, and they ended up relapsing. Um, and then we've had patients who were not quite finished, um, who, for whatever reason, 
uh, went off the program and stopped taking their naltrexone and ran into some issues. But the good thing is a lot of these patients will contact us and say, hey, fell off the wagon, I want to get started back on the program. They get started back on it, and then they're successful. Mm-hmm. So, Well, that's good. That's been helpful. Mm-hmm. And there's there are accountability groups um, that are non-abstinent-based um, in in our area, um, I can't speak for other areas of the country, um, but there are some of these springing up. And there's, there's starting to be more people who are supportive of this approach. And so if patients can kind of have, um, you know, some support through this, I think that makes a big deal of difference. Mm-hmm. We supposedly in England have a problem with binge drinking. Um, they, they show you pictures on the television and in the newspapers where youngsters are good all week and then at the weekends they just drink themselves silly, you know, where they can't stand the vomiting and, and so mm-hmm. on. If they were to, I mean, obviously it's not good for you and, you're going to get addicted to the alcohol. But would the targeting dose naltrexone stop the binge drinking? So we, there is literature to support that, that it is effective for binge drinking. Okay. So it, there is literature to support that. And it, interesting you bring that up about the young people because um, it's, it's a huge problem in this country as well. Um, and our young people are very affected affected by uh, alcohol use, heavy drinking, and binge drinking in in high school. But what we found, my my initial thought was, so if we could somehow work on prevention, so target the children of the parents who have had alcohol use disorders and try and catch them before they develop a problem. So perhaps giving them a prescription for naltrexone when they go off to university um, and just explain, look, we don't want this to happen to you like it happened to us or like so-and-so in the family and just take this beforehand. And we're not condoning the activity. Mm. We're just saying if on the, if on the case that you were to drink, make sure to take this first. Um, but the problem, looking at that, actually, the patients that we're seeing coming through this program, many, many of them have started drinking at 12 and 13 years old. And it's just so young, mm-hmm. it concerns me that, that patients are getting into their, their later teens and they've already, they've already developing the problem and prevention is almost too late at that point. We had a patient just very recently first drink was at 12 and they were drinking regularly by 15 and then some of these patients are having serious life consequences as early as high school um, and we're not able to get them so Goodness. so there needs to be more definitely um, our work cut out for us in reaching um, that demographic mm. wow that is so young Really it, it is, and it was it was surprising. 
it was surprising. The first set of data that I read through and presented in that um, talk, I want to say the ages went down to 14, um, 12. It, mm. It's just, it's so young. You wouldn't, you just wouldn't think about it. No. And I think about my children when they were 12, and it would never have occurred to me that their friends are drinking. But I know that here in our middle school, alcohol is sometimes being brought to school. So it's it's out there. It's more common than I think we think. Well, if you're drinking that young and you have a problem, you're not going to be able to study, which in turn means you're not going to get very good qualifications, which then is going to impact on all aspects of your life, isn't it? Right, right. Yes. Well, and affecting the grades and your ability to get into university or your ability to get into the vocational school or the job of your choice. Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, problem all the way around. And, of course, if you're drinking excessively, there's all that sugar, which mm-hmm. is going to cause weight gain, diabetes, the list goes on, doesn't it? And how do you, right. how do you support buying the alcohol? How easy right. is that and the cost of it? If you were a school pupil, right. You, right. you're not earning a salary, are you? Um, yeah, that would be uh, a good thing to be able to do, but I, I could see it would be quite a tricky thing to achieve. I think the more that we can get adults treated... So right now, it's not something that that people really want to talk about. Like you were saying, they're embarrassed to talk to anyone. Often, I'm the first health professional they've ever talked to about it. Their doctor doesn't know. Their family doesn't know. Their clergy doesn't know. Nobody knows. Mm. Um, and so certainly, their children aren't going to know. But if we can get this out into the open and say, hey, we have a medical problem. So, yeah, there's lots of different reasons for drinking, um, but there are particular cases where this is a problem with endorphin meeting and drinking. It's just a physiological problem. It needs to be addressed as a medical problem. Nobody's embarrassed to go to the doctor for asthma you know, or high blood pressure. An alcohol use disorder is a medical problem. Let's treat it medically. And then I think once people get more comfortable with this model, um, children can see the example that the parents are setting. The parents are addressing a medical problem. Once we can get that mindset changed, um, I think they can model it for the children. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping anyway. So just quickly, um, you were talking about using LDN <clears throat> in the in-between. What would you say the intake of alcohol is for people on LDN. Have they noticed a decrease in the desire to drink alcohol? So I have not used LDN per se um, as an initial treatment for alcohol use disorder. Mm -hmm. And in my patients who are taking LDN for other purposes... Um, I don't know that 
that has made it different than alcohol craving. Well, but, but, you know, it's a very good point because mm. it's not something I routinely ask. No. But we'll see this on the app now. That's just what so, I was going to say mm-hmm, because I, mm-hmm. I've never been a drinker <clears throat> anyway. But if I had wine at a meal, I could drink a couple of glasses of wine and, you know, that was all I all I wanted. But since being on LDN, that two glasses is one glass. And after I've had one glass, I really do not want another glass. I would rather mm-hmm. have a cold drink mm-hmm. of, of some, you know, a soft drink, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but not the alcohol. And I have spoken to other people who have found they don't have an interest in alcohol anymore. Yeah, it'd be very, very interesting. Um, we do have patients who report they don't have certain food cravings they used to have on the low-dose naltrexone. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of patients who have these autoimmune diseases, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and so forth, they have chronic pain. It could be they're taking in more alcohol than we know. And, and we know from the studies in primary care, we're not asking about alcohol as often as we should be. We're not screening for it. And so there may be people on the app that we'll pick up that we, we never asked them about their alcohol use because mm. we were so focused on their, their arthritis and asking them all the questions related to their autoimmune that, you know, we didn't get a full alcohol history. And so maybe when they're going through the app and they see the alcohol page, they'll fill it in and then that data will be picked up. That, that's actually, I hadn't thought of that. That's fascinating. <laughs> Well, that's exciting. We can keep learning all the time, can't we? But I our, think so. Our time is up, Jill. It's always so wonderful to speak with you. We'll have to have you back. Well, thank you again in the in the summer or sometime, and okay. find out how how you're getting on with the app and tracking your patients. That sounds wonderful. And thank I'm you. I'm looking for, forward to it. Good. Thank you for joining us today. No, thank you, Linda. Bye bye. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.